0: But they were minor, undramatic New England peaks, nothing like this. Here, as their steep descent progressed, there was change, different colors, different smells, warmer breezes. Sitting alone in the back seat, he emptied his pocket of every hot pellet, preparing himself for the thorough search he anticipated. He was clean. He was also exhilarated, his excitement under control from years of experience, but his mind was on fire. It was there. He had found it. Yet as they reached ground level, even Harry Latham was astonished at what he had really found. The roughly three square miles of valley flatland was in reality a military base, superbly camouflaged. The roofs of the various one-story structures were painted to blend in with the surroundings, and whole sections of the fields were beneath a latticework of ropes fifteen feet high, the spaces between the ropes and poles covered with stretched, translucent, green screening, forming corridors. Gray motorcycles with sidecars sped through these concealed alleyways, the drivers and their passengers in uniform. Groups of men and women could be seen in training exercises, both physical and apparently academic. What struck Harry Latham was the sense of constant movement. There was an intensity about the valley that was frightening, but then... So was the Brüderschaft, and this was its womb. It is spectacular, nicht wahr, Herr Lasseter, shouted the middle-aged German beside the driver as they reached the bottom road. Unglaublich, agreed the American. Fantastic! Oh, I forget you speak our language fluently. My heart is here. It always has been. Oh, yes, yes, of course, said the German, smiling with neutral eyes at Alexander Lassiter born Harry Latham of Stockbridge, Massachusetts. We'll go directly to the Oberbefelshaber. The Commandant is eager to meet you. Thirty-two months of grueling, serpentine work were about to bear fruit, thought Latham. Nearly three years of building a life, living a life, that was not his, were about to come to an end. Here we are, Herr Lassiter said Latham's German companion as the mountain vehicle pulled up to a barracks door. It is much warmer now, much more pleasant, nine. As the two men approached the heavy black wooden door with the scarlet swastika emblazoned in the center, there was a whooshing sound in the air. Above, the large white wings of a glider swooped in descending circles into the valley. Another wonder, Herr Lazzarder? It is released from its mother aircraft at an altitude of roughly 1,300 feet. In the 30s, ah, we Germans developed the most advanced glider aircraft. Why not use a conventional small plane? Oh, too easily monitored. A glider can be pulled up from a field, a clear pasture. A plane must be fueled, be serviced, have maintenance, and frequently even a flight plan. Fantastic, repeated the American. And, of course, the glider has fewer no-metal parts. Plastic and sized cloth are difficult for radar grids to pick up. Amazing, said Herr Lassiter, as his companion opened the door of the valley's headquarters. You are all to be congratulated. Your isolation is matched by your security. Superb. Feigning a casualness he did not feel, Latham looked around the large room. There was a profusion of sophisticated computerized equipment banks of consoles against each wall, uniformed operators in front of each. As a group, the operators were young, generally in their twenties, mostly blonde or light-haired, with clear, suntanned skin. Each is an expert, Mr. Laziter said a voice behind Latham. The American turned abruptly to see a man about his own age, dressed in camouflaged fatigues and wearing a Wehrmacht officer's cap. He had silently emerged from a doorway on the left. General Ulrich von Schnabe, your enthusiastic host, mein Herr, he continued, offering his hand. We meet a legend in his own time. Such a privilege. Oh, you're far too generous, General. I'm merely an international businessman, but one with definite ideological persuasions, if you like. You were studying our group here. I watched you. You can see for yourself that these, every one, are of Aryan blood. Pure Aryan blood. As are those everywhere in our valley. Each has been carefully selected, their bloodlines traced, their commitment absolute. The dream of the Labansborn, said the American. The breeding farms, where the finest SS officers were bred to strong Teutonic women to produce the true superior race. <sighs> Would that the dream had come true. In large measure it has. We believe that a great many here, if not a majority, are the children of those children. We stole lists from the Red Cross in Geneva, and spent years tracing down each family where the Lebensborn infants had been sent. These and others we shall recruit throughout Europe are the Zonenkinder, the children of the sun, the inheritors of the Reich. It's incredible. We are reaching out everywhere, and everywhere those selected respond to us, for the circumstances are the same. Just as in the twenties, when the stranglehold of the Versailles and Locarno treaties led to the economic collapse of the Weimar Republic and the influx of undesirables throughout Germany, so has the collapse of the Berlin Wall led to chaos. We are a nation in conflagration. The low-born non-Aryans crossing our borders in unlimited numbers, taking our jobs, polluting our morals, making whores of our women. Because where they come from, it's perfectly acceptable. It's totally unacceptable. And it must stop. You agree, of course. Well, why else would I be here, General? I've funneled millions for your needs through the banks in Algiers by way of Marseille. You are, indeed. Indeed. A man of great honor. Mein Herr. Suddenly the front door opened, and a man in pure white coveralls walked into the room. He marched directly to von Schnabe and handed the general a sealed manila envelope. This is it, the man said in German. Danke, replied von Schnabe, opening the envelope and extracting a small plastic pouch. You are a fine Schauspieler. A good impersonator, Herr Lassiter. But I believe you lost something? The general shook the contents of the plastic bag into his hand. It was the transponder Harry Latham had shoved between the rocks of a mountain road thousands of feet above the valley. The hunt was finished. Harry swiftly raised his hand to his right ear. Stop him! shouted Bonchnabe as the man in white grabbed Latham's arm. There'll be no cyanide for you, Harry Latham, of Stockbridge, Massachusetts, U.S.R. We have other plans for you. Brilliant plans. The early sun was blinding, causing the old man, crawling through the wild brush, to blink repeatedly as he wiped his eyes with the back of his trembling right hand. He had reached the edge of the small promontory on top of the hill, the high ground as they called it years ago. Years burned into his memory. The grassy point overlooked an elegant country estate in the Loire Valley. A flagstone terrace was no more than 300 meters below. Gripped in the old man's left hand was a powerful rifle, its sight calibrated for the precise distance. Soon his target, a man older than himself, would appear in the telescopic crosshairs. The monster would be taking his morning stroll to the terrace. His reward, his morning coffee, laced with the finest brandy. A reward he would never reach. Instead, he would die, collapsing among the flowers. An appropriate irony the death of consummate evil among surrounding beauty. Jean-Pierre Jodel, seventy-eight years of age and once a fierce provisional leader of the Résistance, had waited fifty years to fulfill a promise, a commitment he had made to himself and to his God. He had failed with the lawyers and in the sacrosanct court chambers. No, not failed, instead been insulted by them, scorned by all of them and told to take his contemptible fantasies to a cell in a lunatic asylum where he belonged. The great General Montluc was a true hero of France, a close associate of Le Grand Charles-André de Gaulle, that most illustrious of all soldier statesmen. It was all merde. Montluc was a turncoat, a coward, and a traitor. He gave lip service to the arrogant de Gaulle, fed him insignificant intelligence, and lined his own pockets with Nazi gold and art objects worth millions. Monluc had ordered the execution of Jodel's wife and his first son, a child of five. A second son, an infant of six months, was spared, perhaps by the warped rationality of the Wehrmacht officer who said, Well, he's not a Jew. Maybe someone would find him. Someone did. A fellow resistance fighter, an actor from the Comédie Française. He found the screaming baby amid the rubble of the shattered house. The actor had brought the child home to his wife, a celebrated actress whom the Germans adored. Their affection not returned, for her performances were dictated, not offered voluntarily. And when the war ended, Jodel was a skeleton of his former self. Three years in a concentration camp, piling the bodies of gassed Jews, gypsies, and undesirables had resulted in severe psychiatric damage. He never revealed himself to his surviving son or the parents who had reared him. Instead, Jodel observed from a distance as the child grew into manhood and became one of the most popular actors in France. That distance, that unendurable pain, had been caused by Monluc, the monster, who was now entering the circle of Jodel's telescopic sight. Only seconds now, and his commitment to God would be fulfilled. Suddenly there was a terrible crack in the air And Jodel's back was on fire Causing him to drop the rifle He spun around, stunned to see two men in shirt sleeves One with a bullwhip Looking down at him It would be a pleasure to kill you You sick old idiot But your disappearance would only lead to complications Said the man with the whip It's better that you go back to Paris And rejoin your army of drunken vagrants Get out of here Or die how how did you know you're a mental case Jodel, said the guard beside the whipmaster you think we haven't spotted you these last two days then kill me you sons of bitches i'd rather die here knowing i was so close than go on living oh no the general wouldn't approve you could have told others what you intended to do and we don't want people looking for you or your corpse on this property you're insane, Jodel. Everyone knows that. I know what I know. You're also a well-documented drunk. Drink yourself into hell, Jodel. But get out of here before I send you there now. Get up. Run as fast as those spindly legs will carry you. The curtain rang down on the final scene of the play a French translation of Shakespeare's Coriolanus, revived by Jean-Pierre Villiers, the fifty-year-old actor who was the reigning king of the Paris stage and the French screen. The curtain rose and fell and rose again as Villiers acknowledged his audience. From the rear of the theater, an old man in torn clothes lurched down the center aisle. He pulled a rifle out of his loose trousers, causing those in the audience who saw him to panic. Villiers moved quickly, shoving back the few actors and members of the technical crew who had come out on stage. Ah, an angry critic I can accept, monsieur, he roared, confronting the deranged old man approaching the stage. But this is insane. Put down your weapon and we will talk. There is no talk left in me, my son. I failed you. And your mother, I only want you to know that I tried. I tried, but I failed. With those words, the old man spun his rifle around, put the barrel in his mouth, and blew the back of his head apart. Who the hell was he? cried a shaken Jean-Pierre Villiers at his dressing room table, his parents at his side. The elder Villiers, now in their late seventies, looked at each other. Catherine Villiers said, We have kept many things from you, my son. Things that in the early years might have harmed you. We were an occupied country. The enemy among us constantly searching for those who opposed the victors. In many cases, torturing and imprisoning whole families who were suspect. The resistance, naturally, interrupted Villiers. You both were a part of it. You've told me that. But this man tonight, you knew him? Very well, replied the old actor, Julien Villiers. His name was...